Because everything about the Christian life is rooted in a relationship with Jesus. You have to know him. You have to know who he is. You can't just know about him. You have to know him. And so that's our heart and our desire as we do this. And we pick up our story with John the Baptist. And if you remember, John had a special mission and was called by God, even in the womb, the Bible says, to be full of the Holy Spirit, to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry on earth. Later on, Jesus would say that other than himself, John was the greatest man who had ever lived. The greatest man. Very interesting is Jesus would actually say that the law and the prophets continued all the way up to John the Baptist. When he says the law and the prophets, he's talking basically about the Old Testament. You had all these laws in the Old Testament that, that all reveal one thing, that we can never really live up to God's standard on our own. And you had the prophets, all these people who were speaking about the Savior, Jesus, who was going to come. And Jesus actually says in the Bible, he says, that continued all the way up to John the Baptist. So that's one thing that's actually technically wrong in how our Bibles are laid out, is that the Old Testament should actually end with John the Baptist and then begin with Jesus' ministry. So we start out with John the Baptist. He's, he's being visited by Jesus, and, and John has his own disciples who are following him and listening to his teachings. And Jesus hasn't asked anybody to follow him up to this point. Jesus has been baptized by John. He's been tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, and, and here we go. We're going to be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament, and we're going to start in verse 35. It says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. They're disciples of John the Baptist. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he, John, said, behold, the Lamb of God. And you'll remember, this is how John greets Jesus the first time he sees him, when he baptizes him. And if you want to learn more about that, go, go back and listen to that teaching. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak. They heard John point out Jesus. And they follow Jesus. So they take what John says seriously and they go, okay, the Lamb of God, let's go, let's go check it out. And they literally just start following Jesus around, literally. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, he said to them, what do you seek? What do you seek? That is a heck of an opening question, wouldn't you say? I mean, if, if Jesus were Canadian, he would have said, can you believe how great the weather's been? You know, he would have made a comment about the weather, right? That's, that's our favorite go-to. But Jesus just says, what do you seek? You might want to underline that in your Bibles. These are the first words of Jesus' ministry. And time and time again, Jesus will make it clear in his teachings that those who look for truth, those who pursue God sincerely will find him. He'll say things like, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. I've been reading some articles recently about a phenomenon that's happening around the world, especially in Europe and North America. There is an explosion of atheist megachurches. Atheist megachurches. And these are large groups of people who get together and they do church without God. Without God. And you say, well, how, how is that possible? Well, here, here's what they do. They they sing some upbeat and uplifting songs. I would assume that Wind Beneath My Wings is in there every now and then. Everybody, everybody sings along. They, uh, they do, so they do like corporate karaoke, up, uplifting songs. You Raise Me Up, Josh Groban, that sort of stuff. Um, there's a motivational message about how valuable and precious and important you are. Uh, there's an opportunity for people to share vulnerably and honestly about their lives in small groups and share struggles they're going through. 
And, and they have a tight-knit community of like-minded people who, who try to encourage each other in life's journey. And they don't believe in God. And I mention that for a very important reason. The reason is we haven't been called to impress the world with our awesome music and our, our super great singing. We haven't been called to attract people to our church with a self-help motivational message. You don't need Jesus to do those things well. You don't. You don't need Jesus to have great community. You need Jesus if you need forgiveness. You need Jesus if you want eternal life. You need Jesus if you want redemption and healing. And you need Jesus if you want peace. So what do you, what do you seek? And I say all that to make sure we never forget that as the church, it's the gospel, it's what Jesus has done for us. That is what we are all about. And if you're seeking something other than forgiveness, if you're seeking something other than peace with God, if you're seeking something other than healing, I want to be honest so I don't mislead you. There's probably somebody else offering community a lot better than we are. There's probably somebody else doing better music than we are. There's probably somebody else doing a better motivational message than me. Her name's Oprah. She's really good. <laughs> but I want you to understand that none of those things make up the church because you don't need God to do any of those things. Our church exists to be about the things that we can only find in God. Only find in God. We don't want to be a cut-rate version of something else. We want to be built on the things that we can only find in Jesus. And that's what the church is all about. So it's a huge, huge question. What do you seek? That's what Jesus says. What do you seek? And, and, and this is great because their answer is completely fumbling. I, the only way I can describe it is like when, when you're a, a pubescent teenager and there's a girl you have a crush on and she actually turns around and says something to you. You have no idea what to say. So it says, they said to him, uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? <laughs> stupid. Say that. Stupid. You know, the word rabbi means teacher. And they call him teacher and they say, oh, uh, where, where are you staying? What they really want to know is, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? Who, who are you? Where are you going? What's, what's your ministry? What's your mission? And I love Jesus' response. Verse 39, you might want to underline this. He said to them, come and see. Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. And here's what we know about these two disciples of John. We, we know that they're looking for the Messiah because they're disciples of John. John's message was the Messiah is coming. Get ready. Change your ways. Get ready. Prepare for him. So we know that these two disciples of John who are following Jesus, they're looking for the Messiah. They believe that the Messiah is coming. They're seekers. And so put this on your outline. The best invitation we can give a seeker, someone who's looking for God, is come and see. Come and see. Not 20 reasons why you believe or 20 reasons why what you believe is true and what they believe isn't, but simply come and see. Because nobody can dispute the testimony that is come and see what God's done for me. You can't argue with that, right? <laughs> come and see what God has done for me. Come and see what Jesus is doing in my church. Come and hear what Jesus has done for you. Just come and see. 
If someone's not seeking or looking for God, they'll probably say no thanks. And I want to be honest about this. This isn't like a magical line where you can walk out here and say to anybody, hey, come and see. And they'll go, I was waiting. This is for seekers. This is for people who are looking, who are in that place where they're looking for hope. It's saying, hey, just come and see. Come and see. If you encounter somebody who's not in that place, we always say, just just pray that God would get them there. Pray that God would get them there. I've shared this before that, you know, when someone doesn't believe in God and they're going through a tragedy, they're going through a trying time, I don't know that it's always the best thing to pray that God would lift that trial from them. Because we tend to find God in moments of trial, moments of transition, moments of tension. They make us evaluate our lives and realize, I I need God. There are some of us in this room who've gone through horrific life circumstances, but God has used those things to bring us to him. And so when somebody doesn't know God, don't pray that their life would be easy. Pray that they'd find Jesus, and then they would find healing in Jesus. That's the way we need to pray. The Bible doesn't tell us we need to be prepared to win debates and arguments. You know, the Bible tells us we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. It doesn't say be ready to tell somebody else why they should have hope. It says be ready to explain why you believe what you believe. It doesn't say be ready to convince them, be ready to win a debate. It says you, you got to know why you believe what you believe. And then you just say, this is what he's done for me. Come and see Come, come and hear what he wants to do for you. It takes a lot of pressure off. Jesus really echoes the words of the psalmist who said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. When it says the 10th hour in that verse, that would be around 4 p.m. And just, just notice this. Th- these two disciples of John were so impacted when they met Jesus, they could tell you what time it was when they met him. They could tell you what time it was. That's what it's like when you really meet Jesus. It's not like, ah, that's interesting. You never forget it, and nothing's ever going to be the same when you have that moment where you really meet him. Let's continue, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. This is going to be important to come back to. Notice that Simon Peter hasn't even been introduced yet, but Andrew is introduced as Simon Peter's brother. It's a little weird. We'll come back to that. So at first, Andrew found his own brother, Simon, which is Simon Peter. He goes by Simon at this point. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Notice that Andrew's testimony to his brother is simply, I found the one that we've been looking for. The hope we've been looking for, I found him. Come and see. Come and see him. You know, we don't have a book of Andrew in the Bible. We don't. He's faithful all the way to the end. He's martyred at the end of his life. He's killed for his faith. We don't really know much about him after his time with Jesus. The first person he led to Jesus was his own brother, Peter. And it really should say, it should say Simon Peter, Andrew's brother, because Andrew's been introduced first in the story, but, but Andrew's always referred to as Simon Peter's brother many, many times in Scripture. But the first thing he does is he leads Peter to Jesus. Peter goes on to become one of the great church fathers starting the first church. Peter is the man who preaches in Acts 2 the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people respond to his teaching. Andrew was the one who led him to Jesus. When the crowd of 5,000 need needed to be fed, it, it was Andrew who brought the little boy to Jesus. 
And later on, when the contingent of Greeks came to meet Jesus after hearing about him, it's Andrew that brings them to Jesus. And don't ever underestimate what God can accomplish through a simple ministry of saying, come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. The great story goes that Billy Graham was led to faith by a farmer, and Billy Graham was probably the only man that person ever led to Jesus. He's a pretty good guy to lead to Jesus. But he had no idea who Billy Graham would go on to become or the millions of people that would respond to Billy Graham's teachings. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through a simple ministry of, hey, come, come and see what he's done for me. Come and hear what he wants to do for you. And that was Andrew's ministry. So back to our study. Jesus meets Simon Peter, who's going by Simon. And now when Jesus looked at him, when he looked at Simon, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So he's going by the name Simon or, or Simeon at that time before this interaction with Jesus. Jesus meets him. There's got to be something incredibly authoritative and magnetic about Jesus because that's an odd way to meet somebody and be like, hey, your name's Jordan. It's going to be Barry from now on. <laughs> like, All right, just go, go ahead. Change my name. Sure, I don't know anything about you. But there's no rejection of that by Simon Peter. He, he, he accepts it. And he's changing his name to Petros or, or Peter in modern English. And, and this is huge because he knows his real name, but he says that that's not your name anymore. It's not your name anymore. There's something much deeper going on here. And he literally calls him Rocky is what he's calling him. You're going to be Rocky. That's a cool name, but it's loaded with meaning, with meaning because he's calling Peter a rock of a man. It's significant because at this point, Peter is not a rock of a man. Not, not anything close. Uh, later on, when Peter has officially become one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus will say, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. It's quite a promise to have from Jesus. And, and it's Peter, later on, who would walk out on the water to Jesus. And, and many of you know the story, Peter loses faith and falls towards the end. But don't miss the point, Peter walked on water. He walked on water. Now flash forward to the night when Jesus is arrested. Where's Peter? The rock. Peter is hiding in the shadows, denying even knowing Jesus to a little slave girl in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Not very rocky-like. Not very rocky-like at all. But Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. And we know the story. Just a few weeks later, Peter is in Jerusalem preaching to all the men of the city, the same men who crucified Jesus. And he's telling them, you killed the Savior. You killed the Messiah. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. And 3,000 of them are saved. Jesus didn't give up on Peter. And, and that's why I love his life story so much. You know, the promise in Scripture, in the Bible, is even when we are faithless, he remains faith. That's why I love the life of Peter. He's a giant failure, and he abandons Jesus in the hour when Jesus needs him most. But Jesus doesn't give up on him. He doesn't give up on him. It's a great story. You know, some of you are, are, are haunted by your name. I don't mean your name. I mean a title that you give yourself or titles that you give yourself. 
Some of you feel like the things that you've done or the things that have been done to you have left you branded with a name. It's a name that you don't really share with anybody, but it's a name you, you can't seem to escape. It's a name tied to your greatest failures or the times in your life when you were taken advantage of in the worst way possible. And today, Jesus wants you to know that he has the power to give you a new name. He has the power to lead you into a new future, and he has the power to lead you into a new life. The name that you think is yours is, is not your destiny. That's not your future. Jesus is your destiny. He's the one who writes the story of your life, if you'll give your life to him. And today, Jesus is saying, I choose to call you holy. I choose to call you blameless. I choose to call you bold. I choose to call you strong. I choose to call you a man of integrity, even though you don't feel like you're that right now. I choose to call you a woman of exquisite beauty. I choose to call you wise. I choose to call you blessed, full of self-control. I choose to call you joyful. Jesus can do that because he has the power to make it so. And the power of his spirit in you, if you'll give control of your life to him, will give you a future that lines up with your new name instead of your old one. And so here's the deal. Jesus has given us new names. So stop calling yourself by the old ones. Stop calling yourself by the old ones. It's not your name anymore. Not in Jesus. He's the God who makes all things new. It's who he is. That's what he does. Verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Again, there's just something about Jesus. Nothing more needs to be said. He says, follow me. And I think what Jesus is saying is he's like, you've literally got nothing better to do. Literally, you have nothing better to do than follow me. So come follow me. All right. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This, this is great, okay? So for those of you that are into in-depth biblical study, this is predestination, this is election, this is free will, everything here. Because Philip runs around saying, we found him, we found him. Um, two verses earlier, we heard Jesus say to him, follow me. But he's walking around saying, we found him. It's not really how it went down, right? They were looking for God, and so God found them. And that's what happens. Verse 46, and Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? As we've shared before in our studies, Nazareth was the equivalent in the, in the Jewish culture of a hick town. It's a redneck town. It's not significant for any reason. You know, all they have, they have a sign and it just says population. It's not even the home of anything. Home of dirt, you know, nothing. It's the butt of several inside cultural jokes. But Nathaniel also would have been a student of scripture. Nathaniel would have known that in the Old Testament, in Micah 5.2, it said that the Messiah would be from Bethlehem. So that's why he's a little puzzled. He's saying, Nazareth? I, I don't understand. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. So don't you love Philip's response? Philip doesn't begin breaking down theology. It says, Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. I love that. No debating, just the simple invitation. He says, 
I, I don't have all the answers, but I know he's changed my life. And I've just met him. You, you need to come see this guy. Did you notice Philip doesn't even answer Nathaniel's question? He doesn't even answer the question. <laughs> you won't be able to answer everybody's questions. So if you're waiting for that before you invite someone to come and see who Jesus is, you don't need to wait. You don't need to know the answers to all their questions. Your testimony is simply, hey, I, I don't know the answer to that question right now, but I know he's changed my life, and I'd love it if you would come and see because I think he'll change your life too. That's it. You don't need to know all the answers for every question. So write this down. God uses simple methods to do great things. He uses simple methods to do great things. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. No deceit. You're going to want to underline the word deceit. That's going to be important. Jesus is calling Nathanael a straight shooter. He's saying, you're a guy who says what he means and means what he says. And we know from even what he said about Nazareth, he just speaks his mind. He's kind of a, kind of a loose cannon. But notice this. Jesus loves that. Jesus doesn't say, I heard what you said, Nathaniel, about Nazareth. It saddens me. He doesn't say that. Jesus loves brutal, frank honesty. He loves it. Read the Psalms. Brutal honesty from David. That's why God loved David. David never played church. Never played church with God. He was exposed, heart on his sleeve, honest with God. And that's what God wants from all of us. He's saying, I don't expect you to be perfect, but I expect you to be honest. If you come to church and your life is a wreck, don't be like, yeah, everything's awesome. Everything's awesome. Just to say, you know, if your life is a wreck, he would say, you know, we're going to have a chance to worship at the end of the service. Tell me your life is a wreck. Tell me you don't know what to do. Ask me to help you. And then, then we can get down to business. Then we can start doing something. But I can't do anything for you if you just want to play games and pretend. Jesus loves honesty. And so he, he takes to Nathaniel right away. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now this is something very, very interesting because notice the next verse. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So here's the deal. Jesus is claiming a psychic vision of Nathaniel. He's saying, I saw what you were doing. I wasn't anywhere near you. I saw what you were doing before Philip came and told you to, to come and meet me. But the response Nathaniel gives seems a little out of whack for what Jesus is doing. And, and here's, here's what I mean. Uh, a fig tree is the national symbol of Israel. It is in scripture and, and, and it still is today. And anyone who was a student would generally study outside under a fig tree. And they're all over the place in Israel if you go there. These four men we're meeting are all teenagers, by the way. They're 15, 16 years old, most likely. And, and so, so it's, it's very probable that Nathaniel is still in the educational system of the time, which is why he makes a joke about Nazareth. But he is so amazed at what Jesus says about seeing him, it doesn't really line up because... Jesus saying, okay, I saw you under the fig tree would be like me saying, hey, I saw you on your sofa before you came to church today. Maybe you weren't on your sofa, but there's like a one-third chance, right? It, it's not amazing, amazing. So what's, what's really going on here? What's really going on here? 
All signs point to Nathaniel being under a fig tree studying, and most likely he's studying Genesis 28, and I'll tell you why I believe that. Genesis 28 is the story of Jacob. Jacob in the Bible is the brother of Esau. He's a trickster. That's his name. That's his legacy. The name Jacob means trickster, deceiver. He tricks his own brother out of his birthright and blessing. His, he steals most of his uncle Laban's possessions by deceiving him as well. And here's what's interesting. When Jesus says, an Israelite in whom is no deceit, the word for deceit is actually the word guile. It's the same word for guile, and it's also the same word for Jacob. So Jesus is saying, an Israelite in whom is no Jacob is what he's saying to him. And so Nathanael is stunned because in Jesus' introduction, Jesus is saying, I saw what you were reading under the fig tree before you even came here. That's why Nathanael is astonished. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to make another reference in just a few verses to Jacob's story again. And I think you'll find it very, very compelling, very convincing. Jacob realized that what he wanted most was God's blessing. One night, he literally gets visited by God and he wrestles with God. And he realizes that more than riches and wealth, what he really wants is he wants God's blessing. He wants to know that God is with him. That's worth more to him than anything. From that moment on, God changes his name. And his name changes from Jacob to Israel. Instead of being deceiver or trickster, his name suddenly becomes governed by God. Governed by God. I love it when God changes a name. It's always a good thing. And so when Jesus says to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit, he's saying there's no Jacob in you. And that's why Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Now hang with me here. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Jesus is saying, I'm just getting warmed up. You're not going to believe what you're going to see if you start following me. And he said to him, Jesus said to Nathanael, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now you hear that and you go, that's kind of a weird thing. That's an allusion to only one other place in Scripture. It's called Jacob's Ladder. In the story of Jacob, one night he's on the run from his brother Esau because his brother is mad that Jacob has deceived him and stolen his birthright lays down his head on a rock to go to sleep and he has a dream and he sees a connection between heaven and earth in this dream in the form of a ladder and he sees angels going up and down this ladder Jacob does and it's just a sign to Jacob hey God is with you God is doing a work from heaven on the earth he's with you Jesus points back to this and so what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel he's saying Nathaniel remember that story the one you're just reading this morning he says I'm the ladder I'm the ladder I'm the connection between earth and heaven. I'm the way to God. I'm the way to eternal life. I'm the link. It's me. And so you see these two places where Jesus references the story of Jacob. He sees Nathaniel and he says, an Israelite in whom is no Jacob. And then he references Jacob's ladder just a few verses later, implying that he had seen him studying. And he's just blown away by the power of Jesus in that moment. We're going to keep our story going into chapter 2 because this is where we're going to find out where Jesus takes these four men. So they start hanging out with Jesus. And as we go through the life of Jesus, you're going to realize I can't imagine many things more exciting than being 15 or 16 
and just starting to follow Jesus around. You have no idea what's going to happen day to day. Something crazy could happen any day. So here's what happens. In, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. That's Mary. Verse 2, now both Jesus and his disciples, if you're keeping track at this point, it's Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, they were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Classic passive-aggressive mom, right? Doesn't actually ask Jesus to do anything. She just goes, oh, they have no more wine. It's too bad. It's probably going to ruin the whole wedding. You know, classic passive-aggressive, right? And, and so despite what it sounds like in the next verse, Jesus isn't being corrective. He's actually speaking with, with a term of endearment. Jesus says to her, he says, Woman, uh, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, it's not the time yet for me to reveal myself as the king of kings. It's not, it's not time yet. The Father hasn't told me to do that yet. That time later on is called Palm Sunday in Scripture when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he declares himself to be king and receives worship as king from people. But Jesus is going to end up doing a covert miracle here because it's very hard to say no to your mom, if you haven't noticed that, okay? So now notice the next verse. Jesus' mom completely ignores what Jesus just said. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She completely ignores what Jesus said. But what a principle, what a principle. You're going to want to put this on your outlines. If we want to see miracles in our lives, we need to start by doing whatever Jesus says. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she knows that if he's going to do something, people need to do what he says. So she says, just do whatever he tells you. Just do it. That's the principle. So let me share this with you because this is huge. Before you go to counseling, before you ask a wise Christian person for advice, before you even pray about something in your life, if there's an issue, if you feel like God's work in your life is just blocked, before you do any of those things, ask yourself, is there something Jesus has asked me to do that I am not doing? He has not forgotten about it, okay? He's not forgotten about it. And he's not going to be okay with any of us saying, let's, let's come back to that later. I need you to do this for me now. It's not how God works. If you're wondering what the issue is and you know there's something he's asked you to do you're not doing, that's the issue. Start there. Don't think it's not related. It's related. Start by doing whatever God says. Verse 6, Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, talk about that next week containing 20 or 30 gallons a piece are you tracking with me that these are big pots that's a lot of liquid by, by my math that's somewhere between 120 and 150 gallons and when I read this story in my mind I'm picturing Mary standing there with the servants you know just awkwardly like looking at Jesus I got these pots I got these servants there's no more wine you know, and Jesus, Jesus is just like, Mom, Mom. So then I sort of imagine, you know, Jesus, I would imagine, is blessed by the faith 
of his mother. And he smiles and Jesus says to them, fill the pots with water. Fill the pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now. Take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. The master of the feast is just, he's the event coordinator, basically. His job is to keep everything running smoothly. It says, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You've kept the good wine until now. So standard practice was you give people good wine. When they're tanked, you give them bad wine because they can't tell the difference. But he says, whoa, you've, you saved the best wine for last. You're a classy guy. So Jesus, if you're keeping track, creates 120 to 150 gallons of primo vino, okay? Verse, verse 11 this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. I, I want you to underline that in your Bibles. However, it says that the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Here's why that's so important. Because in the original language, what John the Apostle is saying, he's saying this is the first miracle that Jesus ever did. The first miracle. That's important because you can save yourself from all this nonsense about Jesus making pigs fly as a kid and all these Gnostic Gospels and faked manuscripts. It says right here in your Bible, this was the first miracle that Jesus did, turning water into wine. It's important to know. Uh, there's a lot of different things that we can bring out of this text, and we're going to talk about some more of them next week. We, we need to deal with the whole alcohol issue and, and several other angles on this, but but for today, I want to share one, one very simple thing with you, one angle on this story, and we'll look at it more next week. And that is that great wine takes a long time to become great wine. Great wine. You're like, thank you, Jeff, for that profound insight. I'm so glad I came to church today. But you need to have, you need to have a good agricultural year. Not all years are created equal. If you know anything about wine, you know this. This is a good year and a bad year because of the agricultural conditions of that year. The grapes have to be harvested at just the right time, just the right conditions, and they have to be pressed or crushed into grape juice. Then that juice has to sit in a jar or a barrel or a bottle for years. It's why good wine is so expensive. It's why I have no idea what good wine tastes like. So in an instant... In a snap of the fingers, Jesus works around the laws of nature and he does a miracle. What should have taken years happens in an instant. Don't ever forget this. Jesus has given you a new name. And if you'll do whatever he asks, he will accomplish miracles in your life. I promise. He promises. Things that should have taken years will happen in weeks. You know, God can change your job. He can change your relationships, your marriage, your living situation in an instant. You can do it in an instant. So if, if you're watching the clock of your life and you're just haunted by the fact of, man, I feel like I've wasted so much time. So many years have been lost and, and maybe it's too late for me. Maybe it's time for that dream to die. I missed my shot. I want you to remember, Jesus can do a miracle that works around the laws of time. He says in the Old Testament, he says, I'll restore the years that the locusts have eaten. 
It's the promise he gives to Israel. That's the promise he gives to you. He says, listen, if you'll just make me your concern, one of my favorite verses, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, just, just seek me. He says, I promise you're going to wake up one day, look at your life, and say, how did this happen in the best possible way? Some of you are going to wake up one day, you're going to look at husbands and wives, and you're going to say, how did this happen? I thought I missed it. Some of you are going to hold your own kids in your arms one day that you thought would never happen, and you're going to say, how, how did God do this? How did he make up for lost time? Because that's his heart. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. That's how he works. You and I, we cannot circumnavigate the laws of nature and time. We can't. We try, but we can't. The solution is resting in God and saying only, only he can do it. So I might as well stop trying to make it happen. I might as well just let that go to him and trust him that he can do it. Just focus on being obedient to Jesus. Do whatever he asks you to do. And when it's your time, I promise, he will accomplish in weeks and months what should have taken years and decades. That's how he works. Write this down as your last fill-in. The, the kindness of God is not limited by time. The kindness of God is not limited by time. God never finds himself in the place where he says, I, I wish there was something I could do for you but too much time has passed. He never finds himself in that situation. He just says, I'll, I'll make a way. That's my problem. It's not for you to worry about. And one more small angle on this. What, what we see from Jesus is we see extravagance. When Jesus does a miracle here, he does it extravagantly. He doesn't provide just enough because he's not the God of just enough. He's the God of more than enough. And he provides it in such a way that there's festivity, there's joy at this party in an extravagant way because that's who he is. Jesus saves the best for last. As one final encouragement, I love to share this. You know, as believers, you and I, we believe the absolute opposite to everybody else in the world. Everybody else in the world looks at their bodies and their lives and says, man, I'm, I'm trending down. Muscles I didn't even know hurt when I get up in the morning, you know. I'm not able to jump higher as I get older, you know. I'm trending down. As believers, as our body begins to give way, as we age, as we approach death, our belief is that we're trending up. We're like, every day I get closer to eternal life. Every day I get closer to a new body a maintenance-free six-pack. This thing is coming, you know. We believe we're trending up. We're trending up. That's the great hope of the Christian life, is Jesus has told every single one of us, hey, I've saved the best for last for you. I've saved the best for last. Your last breath on this earth will be the best breath you ever take because of what's gonna follow it. I'm saving the best for last, and you're not gonna believe it when you get to taste it. That's the promise of Jesus. Even as we look at the world around us, the Bible tells us that as things get more and more hopeless in the world, Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer 
to taking us off the world to be with him. So while everybody else is panicking and losing hope, we look at it and we say everything is going according to plan, according to what Jesus said. But we are never without hope because if you believe in Jesus, you are trending up because he saved the best for last.